House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Mike Brown, dark poutine himself, is here. Back again, yes. Back again. Boy, I'm like a bad rash. I keep turning up when you least expect me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need we need to get uh, a cure for this. Yes. <laughs> you know, we got, we have, but we've got a couple of doctors here, but I don't think they're the right kind. No, for, for a rash. <laughs> but, I think we'll be okay. But uh, yeah, they they probably have good advice how to get sure. rid of, how to get rid of my rash. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So let's see. Let's start with our guests today. So first up, we've got uh, Dr. Anne Burgess. And, of course, a lot of people know Anne from uh, being played uh, in in the show of Mindhunters on Netflix. And, of course, she's got a couple of good books out. And her latest book is A Killer by Design. And uh, so welcome, Anne. Thank you. And, of course, we've got uh, Dr. Uh, Gary Brucato, and uh, everyone knows him from his book, A New Evil. It's been one of the, the, the best resources for people in true crime and serial killers for years. So thank you, Gary, for being here. Oh, of course. Pleasure. Well, guys, it, it never continues uh, or never stops, I should say. You know, these uh, there's always a constant... Uh, murder in the news or two or several mm -hmm. and there's always a constant mass murder and or shootings in workplaces and stuff like that and it seems to continue i mean it's been a couple of years since we've had you on but um the same thing was going on back then um as going on now and it seems to be highlighted or certainly a lot more in the u.s than anywhere in the world um i, I just wonder what your thoughts on on that and if things are is there is there hope for for things to get better for us and let's start with Anne. well i think one of the things that is when you're talking about statistics and and things like that the 80s were an important time when the fbi were uh really tasked with going after serial killers and that's one of the reasons that they put an emphasis on that so we see an increase there and I think that what's important is Gary's work on, well, what might be the reason for that? And he, his book really goes into the culture and things like that might be responsible for increasing it. But certainly the fact that there was an increase and that we were never sure whether it was just an increase or whether the uh, police were getting better at catching the serial killers or if this new phenomenon of profiling was going to help. And, and Gary, so what are your thoughts? Like, do you, do you think things are getting better in that way? Or is there some underlying condition that's going on in, in the human race that uh, we're just going to keep on doing this? Well, um, first of all, the question you're asking is right at the heart of, uh, of the book I did. And it's also right at the heart of why it is that Anne was invited uh, by the FBI to kind of become involved in helping to understand sexual assault, uh, sexual offenses, serial killing involving uh, that kind of offense, um, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, the, the thing is, when people are interested in true crime or criminology or, or study it professionally, um, they start to realize that the notion that um, these offenses, like you see today, um, have basically been happening at the same rate across all of history 
it, it rapidly emerges as a myth. Uh, what really happened is that there was a kind of a gradual a smattering of those things throughout history. You could count on a couple of hands, uh, let's say, sexually motivated serial killers uh, prior to the 1960s. And then all of a sudden, there's a huge explosion of them, particularly in the Western world, that goes from the 60s to the 90s. And there's been a huge question about why that was, why the FBI suddenly needed to become interested in it and invited people like Anne to look at it. And, um, you know, so what I think is the answer lies in the at the intersection of technology and changes in the culture. And what happens is that as culture progresses and certain kind of, you know, and, and let me be clear, this is not an endorsement of any particular religious or cultural belief. It's just that those things serve as a kind of glue uh, and give people a sense of identity and boundaries. And as uh, time progresses and those things are kind of gradually worn out, worn away, what you start to see is a, is a kind of a gradual disinhibiting of people who lack any clear sense of identity or purpose, a kind of existential soup. And when you take that and you place it alongside changes in technology, you start to see that the law enforcement is constantly having to outpace changes that occur technologically. So, for example, as soon as something is invented, whether it's the Internet, social media, etc., it's immediately used for crime. Uh, Anne and I, for example, have recently been consulted on crime related to the metaverse uh, which is, you know, now that the metaverse is being designed, immediately you start to see assault of people in the metaverse, sexual assault especially, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, as a simple example is the moment the microwave was invented, it was used on three occasions to kill infants. So the, this is a strange quality of human beings that we take technology, use it in that way, and then law enforcement has to outpace it. Um, certainly we could talk a little bit about DNA technology and things like that that have reduced the number of serial killers probably because their people are getting caught before they offend multiple times. But it may also be that there's a cultural change because in the 1990s, late 1990s and early 2000s, there was a transition to more mass murder and a reduction in serial killing. So, but I, but I think we really have to ask some very hard questions about the effects of cultural changes on changing the personality structure of the average individual. Yeah, but when we go, when we look at things like that, is it really the the, the nature of the crime that changes? And I mean this in the sense of a lot of people around in the 60s and 70s when, let's say, religion had a lot bigger influence, was more common in the household, we also produced a lot of serial killers that, isn't so much now so it's also kind of i don't know i'm not sure how to how to take that well that's the that's considered the kind of demarcation point where you start to see the change in uh, the way that crime presents statistically in the united states it's a turning point in criminological history uh one theory that's been proposed we talk about it in the new evil is that the under very good freedoms that women obtained in the 1960s onward, led to a kind of backlash on the part of certain men who had a very hard time tolerating the loss of control over women that they they had culturally. And that could be expressed in anything from serial sexual homicide to the things we see in the Me Too movement, uh, 
and certain atrocities toward women that we see to this day that did explode in the wake of the sexual revolution. It's interesting to think about if that's a coincidence. Um, others, you know, right. Go, and this would be a great point for Anne, I think, to come in and talk about. She came right in at that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, the one thing I want to uh, say from a cultural standpoint is the 60s and the 70s really was when the women's movement started, the second women's movement, if you will. And there was a great push by women to get together to talk in what they called consciousness-raising groups. And they talked about things that they had never talked about before, which, of course, had a lot to do with sex and and um, uh, and sexual assault, incest, rape. And it was very empowering to these women who never were really out of the house very much before that because you didn't have uh, women, at least in those days, that had a, a two-career family that would... Uh, as Linda Holmstrom had studied, they would be in the home, the husband would be making the money and going to work. And so when that started to change, the issue and talking about these uh, the sexual issues that women had, that's when the rape really started to to come about. I think there was one other case that really captured people. It was back in the 60s, and it was the Kitty Genovese case. And this was a case where supposedly people watched while this young woman who was screaming and yelling and, and he was uh, attempting to rape her and ultimately did not only rape her but killed her. And people watched, it was called the bystander inertia. They didn't do anything. And then there was a lot of misinformation was given that on that case. And when they went back and really looked at it, they found out that people, not everybody had heard about it and failed to call police or anything. But the other important thing out of that case is that was the uh, genesis of 911 call. Because in those days, you had to, I think, just dial operator, take a while, the operator would come on, and it would take a long time for anyone to respond to whatever the crisis or the urgency was. So I would think those two issues were really, really important of um, the women now finding their voice and starting to to weigh in, if you will, on some of the cultural issues that they were having difficulty with. Right. And, and it's very important that we emphasize, because this issue comes up, that this none of this should be interpreted as to suggest that it, there's like a blaming of the, the of women for their freedoms being responsible for these changes. It's more that men, certain men, brittle men, reacted negatively to them. Uh, and um, the other thing I think is essential to get into, and this is where Anne really contributed to the literature, and you can read all about it in The Killer by Design, is that when Anne was advising the FBI on, on how to question serial killers and other offenders, it started to emerge that these offenders almost invariably came from certain backgrounds that preceded this kind of killing, like broken homes and, you know, drinking and violence in their background and unstable parents. So that starts to raise questions also about how the culture affected these men as children. And, um, you know, really important questions about broken homes and abuse and violence and things that were going on. And, um, you know, there are very few exceptions. I mean, you could look at people like the BTK killer or Ted Bundy, and certain people that arguably did not have those kinds of backgrounds, but very few of them don't, um, which I think is something we also have to think about, the intersection of what they experienced and their particular 
probably biology, coming together to become these kind of master predators. Right, and, and it was even the way they were portrayed, and I think this is where uh, Gary's book really, really tries to get into it. They were portrayed as the, it was the mother, and when there was a split in the family, it was the mother, it was the bad mother or the controlling mother or whatever. Well, we found it was the absent father that that was really, really important that these men, at least the 36 that we studied, grew up with um, many of them without a strong or even a male in the in the home. So the mother was left to raise the children. And, and that's been a very important factor, I think, in understanding the development, the child developing into the adolescent. Absolutely. We certainly see that in cases in which Anne uh, was heavily involved. Uh, simple examples being Edmund Kemper, uh, where the father was absent, uh, uh, Henry Wallace, uh, the Taco Bell strangler, uh, whose mother essentially blamed him for the mother abandoning the family and, and assaulted him, uh, uh, you know. For, so, I mean, there you can read about a lot of cases where that point is extremely relevant uh, in both of our books. But what distinguishes it in the sense of um, those that don't have um, – you know, the need to go out and kill or that fantasy and stuff, yet they were brought up in a real abusive um, neighborhood or they didn't have a father and things like that. But, but you know, and still they come up pretty productive and, and normal, as I guess was what we would say. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's a development of the fantasy, that we, we, of the death fantasy, if you want to talk about murder. That is something that started early. And in the cases you just said, when, when there is no fantasy, you don't see that necessarily uh, being, that, that's why they don't uh, turn that way. They, they get into something else. They can be very productive. We've seen cases where in um, you could have someone be very, very, very lethal, if you will, but have a siblings that didn't get into crime at all. I, I'm Gary has seen that too. That, how do you explain that? You know, there's even though they grew up in the same, if you will, environment, uh, one turns out one goes one road and one goes the other. I think it has a lot to do with personality configuration, uh, and um, I think that you know when we look at people, especially if we're talking about serial killers, particularly of the sexually um, uh, sadistic type, almost invariably there's some type of psychopathy uh, that is present, narcissism, psychopathy, and sadism as a kind of soup in those people. And when we look at that condition, when we look at these, this, this type of person, what probably goes on based on the available literature, although it's kind of hard to go out there and do brain scans of, you know, sexually sadistic people in prison, but what we learn is, what we have learned is that probably there's certain brain abnormalities in these individuals, very specific areas of the brain have been identified that are a little absent or kind of reduced in size or activity level in these people. And what seems to happen is, is that if you have that type of brain and you've got that kind of psychopathic personality, you have traits like being sensation-seeking, easily bored, unafraid, highly extroverted, charming, etc. And if you were raised in a positive environment, those things could be used in a pro-social way, like being the person that would throw yourself on a grenade to save your friends or 
work perhaps in, in the, you know, for the military or law enforcement, not to suggest, of course, that people who are in those fields have psychopathic brains. It's more that there may be a smattering of people who are drawn to that kind of thing. But then what happens is because of the poor treatment that some of these people receive, that those traits are then applied in an antisocial way. And what you see in a lot of these people, Ed Kemper, who was mentioned being a good example, is that there are times in their life where they actually were considering moving in the direction of working for law enforcement or in the case of Henry Wallace, who was mentioned, he was an excellent Navy officer. There's an attraction to that because it lends structure and identity to a purpose that a person that's kind of swimming in confusion and has those traits. And um, what happens is an end has really contributed to this, what is now, I think, kind of household knowledge on serial killers development is that what you see is that from the time they're children, they have very specific kind of fantasies, very visual, intense fantasies of leveling the playing field and getting even with the people that have hurt them. And then at some point, usually in adolescence or young adulthood, there's a tipping point, sometimes caused by a life event that makes them feel out of control, where they finally go out and enact it and then need to keep doing it to perfect the fantasy or because they're getting increasingly disinhibited or it's like a drug where they just keep wanting to up the dosage. And, um, you know, so that I think it all starts with that brain and that personality style and the question of are you treated well or not? And um, that's where I think the, 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 the cultural changes come in. There probably were people with predatory kind of psychopathic brains all across history, but you need the intersection with, with um, something that disinhibits you or makes you angry. Sensational thinking, like when, you, when they're seeking that, 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 that usually is you know, caused by a, a large ego, a person that, that thinks of themselves as not you know, being caught or anything. I, I automatically think of the accused killer of the Idaho Four when I come to that, someone that's gained attention yet was so worried about the attention they, they weren't really careful. Right. right. Well, Anne and I could talk quite a bit about this case. We profiled it. <laughs> yeah, let's. Yeah, I'm curious about it for sure. I mean, this guy was even a student of Catherine Ramsland's, which is really fascinating. You know, a student of this kind of crime. So let's go for it. I'm really, really interested. The way we started, Gary and I, when we would uh, get together and talk about it, is don't forget we didn't, from my standpoint, we didn't have a crime scene. We didn't have anything that went on in the house. We only had what information we could get from uh, driving around the house or seeing the house or the location of the house. And as little bits and pieces would come out, uh, to, to talk on that, but I think uh, Gary can certainly, he certainly had the personality structure down and um, we did one other interesting thing I, I think I, I could tell him, Gary, is uh, we have, we know a journalist that's following Ed Kemper and we know that uh, we thought what, what Ed Kemper would think and this is all before they identified any su suspect and when we took pictures of the layout for the journalist to take in, because he met with him person, he met, meets with him, I think, routinely. And he put the pictures down. The first thing Ed Kemper said, he, he pointed to the cars, and he wanted to know who the cars belonged to. And, of course, one of the big um, factors is that white car. Uh, so I just was amazed at uh, that, that right off the bat he would he would pick up on something like that. But then cars are often the, the one of the lead uh, 
points that you can get. But uh, Gary could talk a little bit about how he came up with some of that uh, personality structure. Well, the, the 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 major clue in this situation was that it was a mass murder. Uh, you know, there were four people killed at the same time in the same location, which according to any definition, there are a few, is a mass murder. Now, when I was at Columbia Medical Center, uh, my colleague, Raggy Gerges, and I created the Columbia Mass Murder Database. That's the largest study ever done of mass murder uh, from 1900 to 2019, mass shootings and any other kind of mass murder. And it became clear to me, based on the statistics from that database, that the key to this whole thing was that it was perpetrated with a knife. Um, because what we what we know is that when any weapon is used in a mass murder other than a gun, we're looking at a much higher likelihood that the, the perpetrator would be somebody who had some authentic psychiatric difficulty and probably would be considered odd to other people. And so immediately, it, part of the profile for me was that this was a person where stories would emerge about a kind of weird, hot-headed, paranoid, interpersonally um, poor individual, an inadequate personality who was probably expressing some kind of uh, anger or, or um, misogyny or something else through these killings. And also noteworthy for me and Anne was that um, there was no sexual, at least overt, sexual component, no rape, no semen at the scene that we know of, nothing like that. And, um, and when you look at offenders where there is no sexual component who do something like this, um, what you start looking at is offenders previously who have done similar things, and ego-driven offenders like this, and I think, Anne, you would agree, this is the person who committed this offense has the makings of a serial killer, yes. not a mass murderer. A mass murderer is generally sated or commits suicide after the mass murder because it's not really about being a psychopath. It's about exploding because of something immediate at the time, the loss of something, losing a job, school, whatever. That's very clear. A serial killer is much more likely to be a psychopath where the whole point is this was my first try to fulfill a fantasy and now I'm going to keep going out and popping it or doing it more and more. And this looks more like that. So we also postulated somebody that chose a knife because of its power, its possible sexual symbolism, its uh, cruelty, um, probably enjoying the intimacy with the victim, being covered in blood, uh, probably being part of the thrill. And um, so we kind of put all of that together. And um, we also postulated as someone who stalked the victims for some time, who was comfortable with the layout of the house. We felt that the person had probably been there or at least looked at the house a great deal um, beforehand and also envisioned somebody who went in dressed for the occasion like it was some kind of mission, you know, probably with a headlight uh, to kill in the dark, uh, probably with a, you know, a knife sheath, I think I had said in the profile. And, of course, he wound up leaving a sheath. Uh, at the scene. And um, so the final thing I'll say that Ann and I both agreed was very important in the profile was the commission of the crime when they were asleep and in the dark. And we thought that that was a clue of a deeply kind of insecure, control-oriented person who probably didn't like the idea that if someone saw him with their eyes when they were awake and less vulnerable, that they wouldn't necessarily be afraid of him or think he was powerful. 
And um, you see that with the serial killer Robert Hansen, who was also studied by the FBI, profiled by I think John Douglas. Uh, and um, he was a very small, inadequate person living in Alaska who would pick up prostitutes and hunt them in the forest with a gun from behind. And um, it was noticed that they were always shot in the back. And John Douglas's point was he probably was doing this in the dark, you know, shooting them in the back, because if they turned around and saw him, they would see that he was a little inadequate person. And when they were not seeing him, he could fantasize that he was very powerful. So we thought that figured into this person also. And um, and then when the person, uh, Koberger, was identified as a suspect, even though, of course, he remains a suspect, I think we were pretty impressed by how much the profile matched the suspect, especially as stories emerged about him being an inadequate, angry, kind of brittle guy who was constantly weirding people out socially and seemed to have a need for power and control over other people. Um, and consistent with a lot of Anne's work, um, what it's starting to look like is, is that he may have been disinhibited by the loss of a job uh, and um, and then expressed hostility uh, afterward towards someone that had been stalked. Uh, and anything to add to that? I think that pretty much. Right. Uh, we certainly felt, I felt just initially as the case was presented was a what we call a blitz style approach out of the um, no prior interaction just comes in and that he did it at night. Uh, all, all of what you said was important. I, I found it. Uh, and that he, there are a couple of unusual features to it, that there was a male involved and then the three women that I think we agreed that that was a surprise, that he was targeting someone going in, uh, that he certainly knew the house. I had to have known the house to, to uh, get around it without any lights on it. Nobody ever reported that lights had been on and that there were two women down in the first floor or the, the lower floor. And they were not, um, uh, as far as we know, they, were, they, they one saw him, but we didn't know that certainly at the time we were trying to do the profile. That a male was involved really, for me, stood out, uh, uh, reminded me of the Gainesville Ripper. Danny Rowling, um, and and it was sort of reminiscent of that in a way. Uh, am I wrong in that comparison, or uh, is there, you know, like you say, you compare these crimes to ones that are have already been committed and you know uh, sussed out and all that? Well, you always get uh, the possibility that there are some to to actually follow through with the mission, whatever the mission is of the fantasy, that there's going to be some problems. And I think that's, I don't know, that I think Gary knows that case better than I do, but that there was a male um, makes it more difficult for the uh, for the shooter or the stabber. I guess in this case it's a stabber. But um, that could have, uh, that could have thrown him off. Um, there were several things that could have thrown him off. Did he really know that there were six people in the, I, and all of this I think will be coming out hopefully at, at the trial or in June whenever they have a hearing. But there are still some very interesting questions that we have that would, uh, how much can be like other cases, like you suggest, are always is where you always try to match with a case that you've heard about before. That's why New Evil is such an important book. <laughs> because it has, 
it has uh where would you place him on on that scale gary <laughs> well the 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 maximum score that someone can receive in the in that book um who has not um committed sexual assault or repeat murder is 16 which is the category for people who have committed extreme violent uh, and atrocious violent crimes, including murder, uh, where there is no sexual assault and no torture. And um, fascinatingly, when you look at people who fall into that category, who do not express um, power, domination, and control over people through sexual, at least overt sexual means, because you could argue that the knife was quasi-sexual, um, what you start to see is patterns in common. Other people that fall into Category 16 would be the Zodiac Killer, uh, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, uh, and um, the Son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Now, what do all three of those people have in common? All three of them, because they were intensely ego-driven and expressed domination and control through their words and you know, uh, uh, writing to the press, writing to police, etc. What is what you start to imagine is that if Koberger is the killer, that probably we would increasingly find that all over the place he was writing and talking, because people like that love the attention that comes from uh, asserting control over the public uh, by manipulating the narrative. And indeed, we predicted that would happen, and we started to see over time after Koberger was identified that he did mountains of writing and seemed to be toying with the narrative um, and, and probably, you know, intentionally throwing red herrings out there. And um, that ego trip for people in that category is the key to the whole thing because it's almost invariably how they get tripped up. And so we had also predicted that this is somebody whose desire for um, – control and so forth that that ultimately it was going to it was going to trip him up that he might have let's say some unconscious desire to get caught to get attention or make some stupid mistake where he overestimated his ego his power over the scene or ability to control that many people the the case that is most often compared although rolling is interesting because of the targeting of students uh and um you know and, and of course bundy attempted a mass murder at the sorority house in Florida, but but not enough people died to, to fall into the mass murder designation. Um, the, but the case that's most often compared is, for whatever reason, is the BTK case, the Dennis Rader case. The reason being that um, if Koberger is the killer, he turned 28 just after the murders, and um, Dennis Rader was 28 at the time of his offense, uh, Raider was triggered by the loss of a job. That's the speculation with Koberger also. Um, and both of them were not sexual in their offenses, and their first offenses would be breaking into a home and committing a mass murder. And so, you know, the, there's also a comparison made because both seem to be of the obsessional, mechanical type, the kind of people that when people interacted with them would find not particularly nice and warm and cuddly and the kind of people that would have an explosive temper. So, um, and that is something that's been talked about a great deal because of the, fasc the fascinating coincidence that Kohlberger's instructor was Dr. Ramsland, who was the foremost authority on BTK uh, and his biographer. Um, but it looks, at least at this time, that that's just a kind of a strange coincidence. It does raise the question of whether Kohlberger became fascinated with BTK. Uh, and um, people began to wonder if they were corresponding, 
Uh, Ann and I have done several appearances on podcasts and shows with uh, Carrie Rawson, the daughter of BTK. And she has looked into this and has, you know, and as have, uh, as has TMZ. And it looks like there was no connection between the two of them in terms of contact. So it raises some interesting questions. But I think, Ann, you would agree there are some pretty interesting parallels between those two. Oh, a- a- absolutely. And one wonders, you know, the, the theory is or the speculation is, and maybe it has been proven, would I'm not sure that uh, Kerry would know this, that his uh, that length of time that he doesn't, as far as we know, commit any kinds of, of crimes, uh, that he's engaged in autoerotic activity, which makes me wonder if there's a parallel with um, the suspect they have, because he certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't come up with any partner that we, we have heard of since he's been identified as a suspect. So I think we're going to learn a lot more interesting things. It's, it's, uh, I can't wait for June to see what, what, what we can find out, and especially who the experts are going to be that will um, be testifying. Well, well, because, and I think this, you know, Anne is really, which is referring here, referring to a little bit here is that, you know, we think of these offenders, the people of this type, as not being overtly sexual. But when you go in there and you get to know those offenders, they do have a perverse sexual life that's more private. Uh, for example, it emerged that David Berkowitz was gaining sexual pleasure by setting fires and watching the police descend upon the fire. Uh, that was a, that was sexually arousing to him because it was about power and uh, and the ability to control people of authority. And um, so that I think one of the things Anne is, is suggesting, and I agree, is that it's going to be pretty fascinating to find out what was going on in the private fantasy life of whoever committed those Idaho murders. And I personally would imagine that there'd be an interesting search history on the Internet, uh, probably some uh, pornography uh, related to domination and control uh, and that kind of thing, because it's almost invariably present in that type of offender. Yeah, we would want to know what his what pornography he did use. That will be very important. And as Gary says, you can get that from the his laptop. Hopefully, if he if they were able to access it. Uh, but um, the other thing is, the didn't seem as though there was a might not be. I would just that he doesn't tie his victims up. That's always t- uh, tied in. Don't mean that as a fun, but that's a, uh, as a uh, important thing. Didn't uh, BTK tie up? Absolutely, yes. yeah. yeah. And bag that put bags on the heads. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that might be a difference because this was the um, Idaho case involves somebody going in very quickly in a blitz type attack and and stabbing. Uh, I, I can't emphasize enough that Gary's point about the use of a weapon. That's always very important, and any time you're, you're trying to profile a case, is what was the weapon used? Because that could be very, very telling. Right. I mean, uh, a BTK spent probably more time with his victims, presumably, than this guy did. Like you say, they weren't tied up. It was a blitz attack. Uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, I mean, I do true crime for a living, so to come always there's a comparison uh, i i hate to say it that way and also not not in a punny way but um uh it's always interesting to compare these things because there are patterns through i mean human beings are pattern creatures and uh 
it's really important the work that you folks do to identify these patterns, I believe. The victim selection, then is it important who the victim is to to a killer like 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 this Idaho four killer? Because he, of course, you know, he's been arrested. But so is it really important? Does he need to know them very well, or is it just more about the situation? Well, he fantasizes. He can build the fantasy as he wants, especially if he has seen them, which we strongly suspect happened, that he can follow them. He can get really into his his fantasy. So in a way, he doesn't need to know them. Maybe he would like to know them. I do think that there's, and Gary would know this, didn't something come out about uh, his trying to uh, text one of the... Yeah, on Instagram, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so you're going to learn a lot more if there's an analysis of the um, uh, text messaging. Right. Well, I think an important thing to mention here is is that, um, you know, when you're dealing with people with this at least assumed kind of personality structure, the key is is that the victim in many ways is a proxy or a stand-in for some fantasy or person that has upset you from the past so that it, you don't need very much contact with the individual to develop a very profound fantasy about them. As a matter of fact, in serial killers, there's often, especially sexually sadistic ones, there's almost a desire to know as little as possible about the personal traits of the person that you pick up or so forth because it kills the fantasy. So like Ted Bundy, for example, didn't want to know things about you. If he picked you up and, and you started to talk about, you know, I've got to study for a test the next day or something like that, it would bother him because he needed you to be a blank slate. He only cared about your appearance because you were being cast in a, in a fantasy like a movie director would do. And anything you bring in from your personal life is not of interest. In fact, it can be a buzzkill for that kind of personality. So that, that I think what you want to understand, if, if Koberger is the killer, probably what was going on was that he had a longstanding kind of anger at women, particularly women he considered attractive, for feeling kind of like he couldn't dominate them or control them. Here's the cultural piece we talked about earlier, right? Because in the 1930s, he was unable to find a partner, or the 1940s or something. It, you know, it's a lot harder in the post-1960s world. And, um, and I think he didn't know how to navigate it or negotiate it. I think he tried everything in the book to figure out how to turn people into a science, how to understand, to mimic ordinary conversation and so forth, but he was just too weird interpersonally and off-putting. And I think his final conclusion was, I'm just going to assert control violently. And my guess is he saw one of the victims and became fixated on her as symbolic of all of the kinds of women who have rejected him. Uh, and um, unfortunately, everybody else was like collateral damage. Uh, I, I can't help but believe, for example, that the male victim was just in the wrong place at the wrong time with his girlfriend. I don't believe that they were the target. Uh, and um, so, I mean, Ann, wouldn't you echo that? Oh, I, I would agree with that. The alternative would be that he saw it as a challenge, and he was going to, here's a guy that could get this very beautiful young young girl, a young woman, and uh you know, fighting off and, and being victorious in that. I mean, that could be the fantasy. I, I have no idea. But I think either one is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. But but for him to get the young girl, what does that mean? Just It's just control, but it's just killing her. Right. So so there's not, it's not about trying to force her into a relationship or make her something 
to him other than what's in his mind. Yeah, but it, it, well, as Gary says, though, it's the hated person, whoever, and in, in you, you're going to have to find out there's something goes on what what women would do Mm -hmm. and so it's it's a uh, he still is doing what the goal is i'm going to rid that's your misogynist type and if you ever go online and read some of these misogynist types these incels uh which some possibility he could have features of that it's incredible how angry and and they are at women and and how women have all the power and the control and they can uh so i i think that is what one of the things we've we've talked about uh, in terms of of um, some personality structure. Gary, Gary can speak better to that about how how that works. But look at what we hear about his as a TA in in the course. And it's I really want to know what the the altercation I think was the word. Correct me if I'm wrong. That he had with the um, teacher with the instructor, and that he couldn't correct his behavior. And and that speaks to he he was going to get his way or not. He even got his way, if you will, in a in a very counterintuitive way with that uh, getting fired. I mean, that's pretty hard to be fired as a TA. Uh, you know, it really took work. Right. Well, uh, well, it's interesting because when you get in there and really kind of talk to these offenders in a really perverse, strange way. What some of them talk about is the idea of rendering the symbolic victim that's being murdered over and over again through these repeat victims. It's like to render them permanent and predictable because they come from unstable parents, a lot of them. So it's like a weird way of like, now you are part of me forever. Mm-hmm. Like I have you completely under control. So that in some of them, this is literally true. Like when Dahmer, when he would eat a victim, when he was interviewed, he spoke quite clearly about that his original trigger was not wanting uh, his first victim to leave him so that it was a way of rendering him a permanent object forever. And a lot of cannibals talk about that, that that, that the motivation was to have someone that now forever is yours and uh, and you always know where they are. Right. That kind of thing. Right. So so that so I think that in a really weird way, what some of them are craving is a kind of a secure attachment that they want control over something that's theirs forever. And um, and you see that also in acts of necrophilia, and you see it in acts of keeping trophies and objects from people and everything else. But I think that's a big part of it, of the psychology of it. So it's like, I don't care about talking to you. I just want to know I've collected you, and now you're you're with me always. And um, it's it's very strange. It reminds me of a patient I have who are obsessionally interested in something that they don't actually use. Like, for example, uh, I have a a patient who collects mementos uh, related to um, all kinds of famous musicians, but he never actually listens to the music. He just has everything in the world related to them, including, you know, articles of clothing, the original bow used by this person on their violin, you know, whatever. But he doesn't know anything about actually listening to So I think it's sort of like that. Wanting to possess a human being, but not being very interested in people. It's like a weird paradox. Do you think his ego is what got him caught in this case, or do you think he wanted to get caught? Well, you ser- the latter certainly a lot of people are talking about. But the other thing is, look, he has watched 
after this, he had a lot of time to watch the newspaper, to watch everybody's uh, anguish. The, I would think he went to the um, uh, funeral or the memorial or whatever. I mean, that's what a lot of them do. So he got a lot of vicarious satisfaction, ego, whatever uh, term you'd, you'd want, at uh, the aftermath. It's very unusual to see that much attention put, which is what he wanted, on who did this. What kind of a person could it be? You know, just watch the headlines. Right. Well, and in, and in the some of the online writing that the suspect did as a teenager, you start to see glimpses of some kind of dissociative thing, whether it was related to drugs or not, where he would kind of stare in the mirror and see meat and have like blips of, of attention and what we would call a dissociative thing. Uh, interesting that somebody would become a vegan who saw himself and other people turning into meat. Uh, and, um, and what's interesting about it is that I've wondered if under the intense stress of the moment, um, he didn't dissociate a little bit or blip out, like have like little micro dissociative things where he made sort of foolish mistakes. Uh, you see that in people who, who have dissociative, um, conditions, although we don't really know anything, you know, in terms of how true that information was, if he actually had a dissociative condition, if it was a psychotic condition, if it was his personality, drugs, we don't know. But it's interesting to think about. But all I know is, is that irrespective of whatever was going on, this is so meticulously planned out. There is so much malice aforethought that you could not make the argument that he, you know, the person didn't know what they were doing because they were ill or something like that. This is a, clearly related to the personality. Right, and it's going to be interesting. I, I, I don't know if we'll ever find this out, but anyone interviewing him to find out how much he remembers of the entire, uh, I guess it was only about 20 minutes. I looked at the timeline. I don't know if, if that's accurate. But how much does he, and did he forget a lot of time? I've talked to several murderers who cannot remember the murder but can remember the dismemberment part i i um so your point i think gary is really interesting if we'd ever be able to find out how detailed he could get in in the in his memory right well leaving the sheet is very strange i mean that would have been an important uh important souvenir i would imagine for this type of person uh, and the fact that a fingerprint was left on it is also interesting because it leaves me wondering about if he was wearing gloves or wanted to do this with bare hands. Uh, yeah, that's also interesting uh, because we pay attention to things like offenders that don't wear gloves and get in there and strangle or stab with their bare hands because it, it implies that, that they don't want anything in the way of the intimacy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's similar to what patients will talk about when you say, why don't you use safe sex? And they say, well, I don't want that, that, that rubber layer there. It takes away from the intimacy. It's like I'm not really doing it. And uh, so that use that same kind of thing in a perverse way is there when you have somebody who says, I don't want gloves on when I'm strangling the victim. I, you know, it takes away from the, the intimacy. So, that's, so that, that's the thing. I mean, it's interesting. It's disturbing, but I think we have to go to these dark places to understand the psychology of these people. Gary, that's a great research question. How many strangulations did they wear gloves? I've never thought of it that way, but you're right. 
Yeah. Well, well, that's something uh, Anne and I are studying. Uh, Victor Petraka and Anne have a grant just to look at asphyxiation and strangulation murders at Boston College, and I consult on that grant. And uh, maybe that's something we can start to look at. Well, we looked at ligature versus a manual strangulation, and did it make a difference? Uh, so what we haven't done is to then take the, the two groups and maybe look at some other variables. Uh, we'll have to get into our research here. But anyway, it is very, very interesting. <laughs> I wonder, but why do you think he would block it out? Or why do these types of killers block out the murder part, but still remember, let's say, dismembering or taking taking pieces out of the body? Well, I think you have to look at the physiology of it. I mean, that was an intense, in this particular case, that was an intense four people in a short time would require, so, that's what we would talk about before we knew, received a suspect of um, how powerful he had to be, how big he had to be, uh, which he was. He was, he was large and, and strong. And uh, they can get caught up in that. And if his, especially if he had misjudged the situation in any way, that uh, if he, say for example, he really targeted one and she was up on the top floor. And so he goes to, he misjudges what floor she's on, or bedroom, and he encounters, I think he encountered the, the young woman and the, the male at the first level. And that if he had the targeted one was up above and the next. So think of all that, just being able to think about how this had to have so fast. There could have been enough of, as Gary says, some dissociation, some some physiology that uh, in the, the adrenaline rush, they always talk about the adrenaline rush that they get. They get as much emotion and physiology in just planning the attack. So all of those things kind of come in, and you just ask a, a, a wonderful question in terms of trying to understand how these crimes get committed. And that how that helps us in terms of the profiling and then helps Gary more in terms of the personality structure. Right. Well, you have to remember, you're talking about somebody that is enacting a fantasy. I mean, built into it is a kind of dissociative thing where in that moment you don't feel like you. you you're, you're someone else. You're like a god or a kind of a larger-than-life figure. And um, that that idea of portraying oneself as an alternative figure is very important when we we think about the psychology of these people, especially the ones that go out of their way to actually create an alternative persona like BTK or the Zodiac Killer or something like that, where the whole idea is is that the, the self is fragmented, not in the schizophrenic way, but just in a kind of like fantasy versus what I really am kind of way. And I, I think that this, the person who committed the Idaho murders would have had fantasies about leveling the playing field against people and dominating them, controlling them in some way. And I think where the ego question comes in is I think he overestimated the power he could have over people, even if they were asleep, even if they you know, were vulnerable. I, I still think someone put up a fight. Uh, and, um, I mean, and don't you think that it does seem one of them put up a fight? We know they did, because if you look at the affidavit that was just unsealed or unredacted, is the witness in the first floor heard crying several times and was to the point that she went out in the hallway. So someone wasn't killed quickly. Um, 
so whoever was that, I think it would have been the top floor. Not the first, I think the young man and the young woman were on the, the they, they were the floor below, the floor below. Yeah, the, the top floor, I, I think, was the two, the women who were killed. And, right, and I think they, he, he targeted that, that top floor, yeah. So, and, and don't forget that would have been one of the last ones, so he's probably getting tired, and that might have been why he couldn't do any more. That's a lot of people with a knife. A gun is very different in, in terms of needing power or, you know, physical power. Well, I think it implies someone who wanted some suffering. It could, yes, yeah, right. Could be and, the uh, big part, absolutely. Right, and and also with this kind of personality, there's usually a progression of perversion or sexual thrill that precedes murder. Uh, with a lot of these people, we go in and we find out that they've done things like steal underwear, uh, you know, stalk um, uh, and people, things like that. And I would be flabbergasted if we didn't discover a kind of gradual building um, that proceeded. Uh, and wouldn't you say, I mean, based on previous offenders, that's very likely. That's very likely. Right. That, it depends on how sophisticated the fantasy was, how much he had built it up over time. Um, it would be – when did he get fired from his job? Was that after? Maybe that was after. I know November was – uh, but those kinds of things and looking at a timeline would all be important to, to look at if you're trying to put this all back together. Well, I think he would have been getting in trouble and losing a sense of control around the time of the, of the, 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 the alleged murders. And I suppose what we would hypothesize is that he was using the TA position as an outlet for hostility towards control over other people, particularly women who were allegedly being graded differently and treated differently than males, which is part of what he was getting accused of. And um, and then losing that outlet, you know, became problematic for him. Right. It would be important to see what his grades were. Was he was he flunking? You know, uh, we, we don't know that. Um, there could have been other pressures coming on him because to, to lose his TA job meant he'd lost his financial support. Oh, that's a great point. Well, we're going to sleep well tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, okay. Now, our guests have been uh, two great writers. We've we've had uh, Dr. Ann Burgess, and uh, we've been talking with her new book, A Killer by Design, and of course, Dr. Carrie Brucato, the the new evil. So, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts. All shows go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.